this is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for June 5th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Here at one time, rather than having to answer all of you about my surgery individually, I'm going to tell it all at once. No, I never did have black eyes. I never looked like a raccoon. Um, and no, that didn't have much pain. Um, the only pain I had were headaches from being congested. Um, mostly it was just, I didn't realize how much surgery takes out of you and you have no energy whatsoever when it's done. You do anything and then you're foot. So. But apart from that, I'm doing well. Um, I'm not completely well yet. After it was all over with, the doctor told me that it takes one to six months to fully recover. You know, I said, oh, good. But he meant for my head to completely clear up because they're still kind of swollen. But, so if I sound nasally, that would be why. But I get better every day. Things are going well. And Judy survived it too, which is really good. That's very important. The, um, anybody know what Thursday was? Ascension Day. Ascension Day doesn't get as much you know, press in the church anymore. Not like it used to. Anybody remember when, when Ascension Day was a day of obligation? You had to go. To, anybody have to go to church on Ascension Day? Yeah. Ex-Catholics, I assume. <laughs> Couple of aren't. Um, they were the last to sort of give up trying to make people do that. Um, it used to be people would love to go to church on holy days like that because you didn't have to go to work. <laughs> it was really good. Um, and so the church has kind of moved the celebration of it to the Sunday following because we just found there are more people there, and it seemed more appropriate to actually celebrate it. So ascension, though, oftentimes gets overlooked because it's, it seems to be all about Jesus and what happened with him, and you know, I guess you could say the disciples saw it, but it, it doesn't really seem to have a lot of impact on us. But what I'd like to suggest to you is that this Sunday, which is the Sunday after the ascension, next Sunday, which is the Feast of Pentecost, when the Spirit descended like tongues of fire. By the way, you're all supposed to wear red, so you look like you're on fire for the Lord. Um, and then the following Sunday, which is Trinity Sunday, really sort of put the period, if you will, put the conclusion on w the work of our salvation. It tells us the story. If you go back to uh, Christmas, when Jesus was um, incarnated, um, through the Epiphany, when his glory was revealed, um, and, and the visiting of the Gentiles, and then Transfiguration at the end of it. And then if you begin to look at Lent and the journey of Lent through the wilderness, temptation, the Holy Week journey, crucifixion, resurrection, and then in the last 40 days um, between Ascension Day and Easter, Jesus spent that time with his disciples teaching them how it is that the Scriptures foretold of the story of salvation, of how God was going to save the world. And it's something that we've really lost because we don't really focus on the ascension anymore. You know, a lot of people seem to think that, that salvation is that we do bad things, God says, yeah, don't worry about it. Which, after a while, gets to lead you to, well, why did you have to go through the crucifixion then? If, it, if I forgive you, it would be a lot easier. You know, couldn't you just write it in the sky or something? Wouldn't that have been simpler? It's not a big deal. Some 
people, even in the church, have gone so far as to suggest that theories of atonement, you know, that, that Jesus died for the sins of the world, are actually cosmic child abuse, which is fascinating that they would actually look at Jesus as, as a child and a victim, um, as opposed to the Lord God, sovereign king of the universe, who was and is and is to come and always has been, um, who didn't wasn't taken to the cross, but actually willingly went to the cross. You know, he may have been the victim, but he offered himself as a victim. He was not an, a, a victim in the sense of that somebody was doing something to him he didn't want to allow. And all that has to do with the fact that we don't understand how our salvation comes about. You know, we seem to think that Jesus dying on the cross is like a great big sign in the middle of history that says, I forgive you, don't worry about it. But that doesn't make much sense. If you think, I mean, there's got to be a better way to do it than that if all you want to do is let people know. No, what Jesus did in, in the whole Jesus event from the time of the incarnation all the way through to the Feast of Trinity is the story of our salvation, about how it is that we are saved from sin and death. You see, when Jesus became human, he didn't just, you know, sort of stick God inside of a human body. He took on human nature itself. He became human. He became all of us. And when he died on the cross, he died as all of us on the cross. And then when he was raised, he was raised as all of us. Now, the question that often comes up is, well, why is the ascension so important then? What, what difference does that make? You know, is it really that significant? Well, it's very significant because there's that question, what happened to the body? Where did it go? Now, some people, even back then, suggested that the disciples had stolen the body and were hiding it so they could perpetrate a fraud. Some more modern theologians have suggested that it was buried in a mass criminal grave and nobody ever knew where it was, so they just assumed that he had, had been raised from the dead. You can see the problem without a body. You know, what happened to it? That's why the ascension is so significant, because there is a body. He has it. What it says is that the disciples went out to the Mount of Olivet, which was a Sabbath day journey from where they were staying in the upper room. A Sabbath day's journey, by the way, is no more than a thousand yards. Just to let you know how far. So you can't walk further than a thousand yards on the Sabbath. So they went through the gate, went down the Kidron Valley, back up to the top, and got to it. And if you go there today, you will see that there is a, a very small church there. It's round, completely round, but it's, it's not very big. I'd guess and there are no chairs or anything in it. It's got a dirt floor. And if, if you got everybody in there, it probably wouldn't hold more than 50 people. You know, that's if you're all bunched up together. And there's a hole in it. I mean, it didn't have a roof. They didn't want Jesus to bump his head on the way out. I, I mean, it was to signify that this is where he ascended to heaven. Now, later the, the Muslims came and they put a dome on it. Although, oddly enough, because they do respect Jesus, they um, left another hole in the top of it so he could still get out. Um, and, but they wanted everybody to know that Islam had... Christianity. And so here 
you know, Jesus is. And if you go to that place, you can look, and there's this one rock in the dirt. And it's kind of cordoned off because that is the place from which Jesus ascended, the launch pad. Now, people say, well, how do you know that's the place where Jesus is? Well, we don't know that's the place. I mean, how, you know, nobody took DNA to see if any of his you know, soul had rubbed off on the rock or anything. But the mere fact that the church has felt it was important to have that place tells us something about why it's important. It's important because it is not an idea. The ascension isn't a concept. It's historical. It really happened. And places like that in a rock that's there help us to think of it as real, as something that really happened. And so they went out there, and Jesus began to ascend into heaven. And he ascended into heaven in an interesting way, because it says that he ascended into heaven into, remember what it said? The cloud. Now, what's fascinating about that is that word that is used there for cloud is exactly the same word that is used for the pillar of cloud that, le- that led the Israelites around out of, the, out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. Remember, it was a pillar of cloud by day and a, a pillar of fire by night so that they could see it. Now, the reason why that's significant is because it's telling us not that they actually watched Jesus and said, Wow, look at that bunion. I mean, that wasn't the point of it. And honestly, it would have to be some awfully low-hanging clouds. I mean, how would you see one human being if the clouds were very high? I mean, wouldn't they sort of become a little dot where you wouldn't even know they were there anymore? No, the significance of it is this cloud is like a pillar. You remember the movie um, The Exodus with Charlton Heston? Remember this tornado led them around a little bit? Um, And so he ascends, though, into this same kind of cloud, this pillar of cloud. Now, what, who is that pillar of cloud? Do you remember? Not the Spirit. We weren't quite that sophisticated back in the Old Testament. God, yeah. Oh, I am. I I thought I heard somebody saying something, but I couldn't hear what it was. Yeah, I am God. And so he is ascending into not just a cloud, but he is ascending into God himself, into the Godhead. And what is it that he's taking with him? His body. And not only his body, but he's taking with him human nature itself. He has redeemed it, he has claimed it, and he has changed all the rules. Prior, human nature had always been just a part of creation. Now, it is part of God. He has united our very nature to God himself so that we could be with God. Because otherwise, we couldn't be with God. There would be no way that we could bodily ascend into God. Because God is spirit. Until Jesus did, So the significance of that is is remarkable. He not only took fallen, sinful human nature and redeemed it, but he also made it permanent by carrying it into the immortal, everlasting, all-knowing 
God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This trinity now also has with it the very flesh of Jesus and bearing with it human nature itself. And in doing that, we can be saved. Not just told, oh, don't worry about it, but truly saved. Our natures can be different. Our natures can be like his, both human and divine. Now, does everybody automatically get that? Oh, wouldn't that be nice? You know, God just waves his magic wand. Of course, we'd all be robots or clones or something. He just did what he told us to do. We wouldn't have any choices, but, but no, more has to happen. Now, a lot of that story will come later as we talk about Pentecost, about how that happens. But in the meantime, let's look at the consequences of what happens if we choose to live into the salvation that he has given us. Well, we see it partly in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is talking to um, the, the recently converted people who are about to be baptized or were just baptized, depending on which part of the, the epistle you're reading. And in that, what he is saying to them is, do not you know, look at the trials that you are undergoing as though they were strange. Doesn't that seem a little odd? What does strange mean? Not familiar? And not normal. So we have a clue right there about what suffering is about. Suffering in the world is now normal. It is part of the fallenness of creation. So the next time you want to know why did this have to happen to me, just remind yourself, well, it's really not that unusual. It happens to a lot of him. Bad things happen. The world is broken. So he says, don't look at it as something to be strange. He says, rather, rejoice in your sufferings. There we go again. You remember Paul's into that? What is it with these guys? They love su- suffer. Yeah. I mean, you all do that, right? When your boss yells at you at work and tells you how lousy you are, you just say, oh, goody, goody, goody. I'm feeling good now. He says, rejoice in your sufferings. And then he tells us how to do it. He says, rejoice in your sufferings by being steadfast in what? Your faith. What is this faith? This faith is this trust that we, our very nature, has been carried into heaven with God. And and in fact, what we now know is that when we do suffer, be it financial, emotional, physical, whatever, when we suffer, we now have the opportunity to see that not as a a burden or something that, that shouldn't be or something that we just want to get past or avoid, but we now see it as an opportunity to share, one, in Christ's suffering, because he suffered, and two, to witness to the world that Christ will overcome, that we need not be afraid of the suffering, that there's nothing about it that ultimately can win. I mean, think about it. Does anybody know suffering, I mean, more than Peter and Paul? They experience a lot of it all the time. So when somebody who lives a life of suffering is willing to say, you should rejoice in your suffering, 
then somehow or other, something's different. Because what do they know? Why would they see it that way? Because, you know, it would be easy for, you know, a lot of us, because, I mean, let's face it, our suffering, we haven't been beaten, tortured, any of that kind of stuff for the most part. Some of you may have, but I certainly haven't. You know, our suffering is a lot of times when somebody says something that hurt our feelings. You know, these guys, their suffering was far beyond that. Ultimately, they suffered unto death. And yet they're saying, rejoice. Be steadfast in your faith. Because your faith reminds you of what this suffering brings about. What did the suffering of Jesus bring about? Our salvation. What did it bring about for him? Yeah, resurrection, exaltation. I mean, all sorts of incredible things. What does it mean to be steadfast, though? Yeah, don't forget. Hang on to it. Now, why would he say that? Well, quite honestly, if any of you have ever suffered anything, you know why he said that. I mean, we don't want to suffer. Ever. Suffering is bad as far as we're concerned. And it would, our real reaction, our, our worldly reaction is to do what? Run! Because <laughs> we don't like it. It hurts. And it doesn't really matter what kind of suffering it is. Some of it we run from faster than others, but, you know, some people run, I'm, I'm personally pain avoidant. Um, but other people have a very high threshold for pain, and that stuff doesn't bother them very much. Some people, though, are emotionally avoidant. You know, they, they don't want to be hurt. Some people are terrified of, of a financial disaster. You know, we all have things that are there. And, and what Peter is telling us in this is be steadfast. Be like an unmovable rock. We have an example of what steadfastness is like in the Old Testament. Who in the Old Testament was steadfast? Well, for a while. <laughs> Go higher. Whose steadfast love are we always talking about in the Psalms? God. God has steadfast love for his people, doesn't he? You don't think they made him suffer? If you have kids who have gotten very old, you know what it means to have to be steadfast. Because it's either that or invite them to move, which is difficult when they're 12. Um, because it's hard. Anybody who's been married knows what it's like to be steadfast, at least if you're happily married. Because it's hard. But what would it be like if all of our life was simply to run away every time? And so what Peter's saying is that, look, if you're being persecuted because you are of Christ, that is cause for rejoicing. Not for fear or, or running away. You know, not for being terrified about it. And he goes on to tell us that it's not just, our suffering doesn't have to do just with what you seem to think is going on in front of you. You know, a lot of times we seem to think our, our suffering is caused either by 
oh, a disease or bad weather or our boss laying us off or people being unfair to us or our spouse being a jerk. or I mean, what, it's always you know, something that's being inflicted upon us as part of the world. And what, what Peter's saying is, look, you don't get it. That's just like a symptom of what suffering is really about. What you need to realize is that you have an adversary. He is the devil. And it says that he prowls around like a roaring lion. What does it mean to prowl? If you're on the prowl, what are you doing? You're hunting something down, aren't you? And it says that he is waiting. Isn't that interesting? He's, he's patient in his hunting. He doesn't just run out and, you know, scatter the herd. No, he's going to take his time. And he said he prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting for someone to what? Devour. What does it mean to devour? If you devoured that pie, what would it mean? You ate it all, right? It's gone. That's what Satan wants. He wants to devour us. He wants to reverse this incredible gift that God is perfectly willing to give us that we can share in his very nature and we can share in what it means to be God. And he wants us to look back at the world. And so he prowls, he's on the hunt. Now, Satan's not stupid. You need to understand that. He, he doesn't come at you where you are strongest because that would be easy, wouldn't it? I mean, it wouldn't be hard. I mean, he isn't going to you know, try to attack you on something that you could go, eh, I don't care. That wouldn't do any good, would it? Instead, he does what animals do. When, when a lion is hunting, what does, where does a lion go in the wilderness? You know, but if he's in the jungle, where does he go? He wants to find, yeah, he looks for something. Why would he go to a watering hole? Why do they go there? They need it, don't they? They have to have it. They can't do it without water. The lion's not stupid. That's what Satan looks for. He looks for that moment when you are not being steadfast, when you are not on guard. And then he pounces. We see that in everyday life, by the way. If God loves you so much, why would he let that happen? If God loves you so much, why do he let that tornado hit Joplin? If God loves everybody so much, why do you let those guys fly that plane in the Twin Towers? See, those aren't the words of Jesus. Those are the words of Satan, constantly undermining. He's also saying, if God loved you so much, you wouldn't have the problems you've got. Sometimes you even hear Christian preachers preach that. If you love God enough, you wouldn't have the problems you've got. You know, everything would be great if you were doing the right thing. And what Satan wants you to do is he wants you to believe that. He wants you to believe, once again, that that water for the, for the animals, or your job, your income, your relationships, um, your health, whatever, he wants you to believe that those are the preeminent thing in your life. And that without it, 
You are worthless and you have nothing. And he's going to wait until you've got your head stuck down in it, afraid that it might disappear or you might not get enough. And then he's going to come and get you. And he's going to devour you. He's going to say, see, I told you. You can't trust him. Yeah, this crucifixion stuff, oh, looked really good, didn't it? What good did it do you? You know, you're still out of work. Your husband or wife still left you. You still got cancer. You still have these problems. What good is he for you? I'm the prince of the world. What you need to do is focus back on the world. If you want to make money, you go out there and you do what you've got to do. You take advantage of whoever you have to take advantage of because that's the way it works. If you want to overcome this cancer, you fight with every step of your being, no matter what. You know, if, if your spouse is, you know, leaving you or something, then you fight to save that. Because somehow or other, if I do what I do out of my own will, if I live by the rules of the world, I'll be okay. Isn't that the way it is? How many of you work in places where you're not allowed to tell people about your faith in Jesus Christ? Shall I read the papers this week? federal judge ruled that a girl in Texas wasn't allowed to um, say amen <laughs> or church or Jesus. She had five words. They were, it sort of reminded me of George Carlin, seven words you couldn't say on TV, except that they all were religious. Fortunately, it was overturned. <laughs> but um, We live in a culture that's telling us these things, and we go, well, I can't do that. You know, Well, why not? Well, I'd lose my job if I did. Oh, well, that makes a difference, doesn't it? We have to have a job. That's what Satan says. Let's see, what was Jesus' job? What did he do for a living? No, not really. He wandered around. <laughs> said, I need that donkey. Go tell. I mean, what were the disciples' jobs after the resurrection? Oh, but if they did that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would get mad and they might even persecute them, might even put them out in front of a gate and stone them to death like they did Stephen. Matter of fact, they even arrest them and told them that. Shut up. Quit talking. <laughs> if you don't, we're going to do something bad to you. They said, well, we can't. This whole imagery that we see here about this battle is to tell us that the forces that we fight are not of this world. It's much bigger than that person who's giving you a problem. It's a, it's a force of, of a battle of who is going to win possession of you. Is it going to be the prince of this world or the king of the universe? And we make those choices every day. Every time that we compromise, every time that we Look at life with fear, thinking that I couldn't overcome that if it happened. And we all know we all do it. I mean, I do it, we all do it, because it's what we've been taught. It's the only thing we know. And so the imagery, though, becomes powerful when you realize what it is that we really begin to see. 
when, when you, where did you hear about lions and Christians and suffering and stuff like that? What does that remind you of? Yeah, martyrs, isn't it? That they were tortured. Now, what's fascinating about that is the Romans did these sorts of things to um, basically to, to, one, make an example of them, but two, for entertainment. And, you know, we look at that and go, who in the world would be entertained by that? But... I mean, it's really not that unusual if you think about it because what they accused them of was they said they kidnap live babies and they eat them alive. They deserve to die as far as these people do. Kill them! I was watching a, a thing on Biography Channel and I had a lot of time <laughs> laying in bed. And there was this thing on Ted Bundy that was on and, and, and most of it I, I kind of knew before except for when he was executed. People threw barbecues, held up signs, burn, Bundy, burn. The, the, the district attorney who was there, the one who prosecuted him, said it was like a carnival. They were driving their, they, were, they did a countdown to the time that the switch was going to be thrown. And people were hawking their horns. And they were celebrating. That's not real far from the Colosseum, is it? That's not a whole lot different. And because he deserved it. And the Romans thought the Christians deserved it. But oddly enough, these Christians knew the words of Peter. Rejoice in your sufferings. Be steadfast in your, by being steadfast in your faith. And so when they were led into the Colosseum... They didn't go in like, oh, oh, no, oh, no, this is awful. What are they going to do? Oh, no, I'm scared. They went in singing. They went praising God for the opportunity. Isn't this great? We're going to get burned at a stake. They even helped the people who were torturing them do it. And it changed the world. Because all of a sudden, the people in the stands were going, why are they happy? What do they know? That's weird. And you know, the first time it happened, they probably thought, well, I mean, those are a bunch of weirdos. The second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time, the seventh time, they begin to go, who are these people? And what's interesting about it is the word martyr that we use actually is, is a Greek word that is literally translated witness. What they did was through suffering and through death, they showed the Roman world their faith, their complete and utter trust in a God. They knew that, yeah, you can torture my body. You can kill me. You know, you can take away all my possessions. You can do all of these things. But honestly, you couldn't do it any worse than you already did to my Lord. So, and I know what happened to him. He's the king of heaven. And I know that because he lives, I will live. But do your worst. You can kill my body, God will raise it. Go ahead. 
you live that kind of faith? You know that about yourself? That no matter what God does to you, or allows to have done to you, I mean, no matter what the world and the devil may do to you that God might allow, that he would never allow them to destroy you? That he will always vindicate you if you were one with him? Because now you are part of God. That's what enabled the martyrs to do those things. That's why a lot of churches, it wouldn't do us any good because ours are glass, it wouldn't work at all, but you know, a lot of church doors are red. You know why it's, they're red? Hmm? They're paid off. <laughs> I think that was more of an incentive to get it paid off than it was why they were paid off. Because we enter the church not because of something we've done or how good we We really enter... We might enter a building, but we really enter the church through the blood of the martyrs, through the blood of the witnesses, through those people who rejoiced in their suffering. Because if they had not done that, I can tell you right now, you would know about as much about that as you know about Mithras. Believe it or not, in, in the early Roman times, Mithras was a more popular god than Jesus. Very similar too, by the way. He was killed by a bull, but it was a little different. But he raised from then, and he was more popular. But there was a difference. When they killed the people who followed Mithras, they weren't happy about it. They didn't witness. They thought he was going to come and protect them and save them so that wouldn't happen. They thought that suffering was strange rather than normal. So, how do we then apply all of this? Well, ultimately, it comes back to, there, there's a saint, St. Athanasius, who was the Bishop of Alexandria. There's a creed um, written by him. It's the Athanasian Creed. It's in the back of your prayer book. You're welcome to read it. Um, we can use it during services. It's two pages long. People are usually glad that we don't. Um, and, uh, I mean, he's one of the great saints of the church. But he wrote a book called On uh, the Incarnation of God. And in that book, he, he made a very simple statement. He said, God became man so that man might become God. Now, there's something significant that you need to realize. He didn't say God became man so that man might become God's. You don't get to be your own God. There's only one God. What he meant, and the Greeks call it theosis, was that through, through the power of the Spirit that we'll talk about next week, we can share in the very nature of Christ that is both human and divine. And therefore, we can share in God. That's the goal. And so this week, I want to challenge you a little bit. When, maybe this week, maybe this afternoon, maybe before you get out of here, when somebody comes along that's just really irritating you or putting you down or doing something that really bugs you, ask yourself, am I enduring this Gladly, steadfastly with faith? Or do I want to retaliate? And if I'm not retaliating, am I not retaliating because I'm afraid to retaliate because of the consequences? Or do I really love them? You know, I'm sure you'll get an opportunity. If nothing else, somebody will cut you off on the way to work or something. And when that comes up, ask yourself, what would it look like if I use this in a very different way, if I didn't see it as strange, 
but rather I was steadfast in my faith, and I saw it as an opportunity to rejoice, and by rejoicing, be a witness to show them that we don't have to live by the brokenness of the world, that we don't have to be afraid of the prince of darkness, that our God is greater. What would it look like if I did that? And challenge yourself to do it. Every time you hear yourself say, that's not fair, or thinking it's not fair, or whatever version of that you use. As we get older, we quit saying it's not fair, but we come up with other ways of doing it. They don't know what they're doing. We usually do blaming type thing. Anytime that you come up with those sorts of things, ask yourself that question. Well, I can sit here and, and, and think, this is my life shouldn't be like this. This isn't right. Or what would it be like if I used it as an opportunity to rejoice in showing the victory of God? What would it be like if I actually showed it to the very person who's doing it to me? How would that look? Because when we do that, when we're finally able, even in moments, because I'm, I don't know anybody who's been able to do it even as much as the martyrs did, honestly, although I, there are people in Africa doing it. But when we do that, then we become free. Because we've shed the worldly nature and the worldly desires. We've learned what it means. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume. But store up yourselves treasures in heaven. We've learned that our life is so much greater than what the world around us would make it out to be. And we can face anything. And we can endure anything. And we can overcome anything. Even death on a cross. Because you see, when Jesus died, if I have died with him, that ascension day, it wasn't just Jesus that went to be with the Father. We all went to be with the Father. It's the way he ends the high priestly prayer that we read the end of it in um, John today. The last thing, anybody remember the last thing that Jesus said in that? last thing he prayed for? Father, may they be one as we are one. That's the goal. To be one with God. To totally surrender and let Jesus be the head and to let us be the body. Because in that is victory. Amen. You have just been listening to Come and See. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrews is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to come and see.